Good evening and welcome to NTD News. I'm Tiffany Meyer and here are today's top stories. Israel continues with its siege of the Gaza Strip as Secretary of State Antony Blinken visits the country and confirms U.S. support for Israel. Will the White House put boots on the ground amid a rising American death toll? The latest on hostages and an announcement to get U.S. citizens out of Israel. Is a rescue for missing Americans possible? A retired hostage rescue team member explains the dangers and challenges involved in a rescue mission. Tragic reports have come out saying the Hamas terrorist group has been beheading babies. Are the reports true or not? We hear from sources on the ground. On Capitol Hill, frustration is growing among House Republicans as a path for seating a new speaker is looking even more narrow. Will Congressman Steve Scalise get the votes or is there another plan to move forward? Another conspiracy charge against Senator Bob Menendez. Federal prosecutors say he used his influence to aid the Egyptian military. And negotiations are suspended. Striking actors and Hollywood studios disagree to the point they've stopped talking to each other. How far apart are they? It's day six of the war between Israel and Hamas, and the death toll has risen to over 2,600 on both sides. Israeli officials now making a demand to Hamas. In an update on Thursday, Israel said over 1,300 of its citizens lost their lives in the war, including 247 soldiers. According to authorities on both sides, Israeli airstrikes have killed more than 1,400 people in Gaza. That's in addition to roughly 1,500 Hamas terrorists killed inside Israel. Israeli officials say they won't allow food, fuel and aid to flow into Gaza until Hamas releases the roughly 150 hostages they took. They say Hamas leaders and infrastructures will be dismantled. Gaza will not look the same. We will reach a situation where Gaza leaders will be badly beaten. We will dismantle them. And whoever stays there will fully understand that you don't do such a thing to the state of Israel. Israel continues with its airstrikes on Gaza as Hamas fires thousands of rockets into Israel. The Israeli military says it's preparing for a ground offensive in Gaza. This comes as Gaza's only power plant ran out of fuel and shut down Wednesday. Roughly 15 percent of the territory's 2.3 million people are displaced. The cumulative number of displaced people increased by 30 percent just over the last 24 hours, now totaling more than 338,000, of whom over two-thirds are taking shelter in schools run by UNRWA. Fears also growing in nearby countries. Syrian state media reported that Israeli airstrikes on Thursday hit international airports in the Syrian capital, Damascus, and the northern city. To the north, local residents along the Lebanese-Israel border also fled after Hezbollah terrorists and Israeli troops exchanged fire for days. The battle that happened yesterday was unbelievable and made Monday look like nothing. I mean, three hours of rockets, artillery, mortars, and even gunfire. U.S. Secretary of State Antony Blinken visited Tel Aviv, Israel on Thursday, where he met with Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu and pledged support for the country. Uh, we discussed in detail what Israel needs to defend itself, its people, and how the United States can help to meet those needs. 
We're delivering on those needs as we speak, and we will work closely and swiftly with Congress to meet them as they evolve. Blinken also made an unscheduled visit to a donation center and spoke with survivors of Hamas attacks. The Secretary of State left Israel on Thursday and from there will go on to visit Jordan, Qatar, Saudi Arabia, the United Arab Emirates and Egypt. Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin plans to visit Tel Aviv on Friday. Reporting by Allison Lee, NTD News. More Americans are confirmed dead in Israel and over a dozen remain missing. Joining us live is NTD's White House correspondent Iris Tao. Good evening, Iris. What's the latest you're hearing from the White House about this ongoing conflict? Good evening to you, Tiff. We're hearing bad news here. The White House today announcing that the number of Americans killed in Israel has risen to 27 and that 14 are still missing, with less than a handful of them believed to have been taken hostage by Hamas. The White House says it's doing everything it can to help rescue these American hostages. But White House National Security Spokesperson John Kirby told me today that right now the U.S. does not have any plans to send U.S. troops to the ground. Watch. Thank you. Question on sending U.S. troops. So you said there's no intention and no plan to do so, but has it been ruled out? Is that still an option pending? There is no intention, no plan, and frankly, no desire by the Israelis for U.S. combat troops to be involved in this conflict. The White House today also announced that starting this Friday, it would begin arranging charter flights to help Americans who want to leave Israel to get to other parts of Europe. And when it comes to Americans here at home, the White House says President Biden today met with senior law enforcement officials and national security officials to talk about protecting the U.S. homeland. Capitol Police are now warning about social media posts about a so-called day of rage this Friday to support Palestinians in Gaza. And Kirby told me today that White House is supporting a move by social media platform X to remove hundreds of Hamas-affiliated accounts and some posts with misinformation. Watch. Potential misinformation surrounding this war and how concerned is administration about this? We've seen the reports that X has, uh, has taken down quite a bit of uh, misinformation. I mean, we, we certainly support those decisions. That, 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 that kind of information has no business being out there, certainly when you know it's uh, absolutely know it's false. And in light of Hamas leaders calling for a day of rage, Capitol Police say there will be enhanced operations around the Capitol complex on Friday because they say they're not taking any chances. Back to you. A troubling update, Iris. Thank you for your reporting. Could the U.S. realistically rescue any hostages? Joining us to discuss the unique dangers and challenges involved in this critical mission is a retired FBI agent who was a member of the Bureau's elite hostage rescue team. Greg Schaefer, thank you so much for joining us. Good to have you on the show. Thank you. To begin, Israel is saying no exception to the siege in Gaza. Now Hamas is threatening to execute hostages live on TV if there are unannounced Israeli strikes. What are the unique challenges facing rescuers as they try and extract hostages out of that area? Well, hostage rescue is a very difficult skill set to master. There are very few organizations or units that are actually skilled at hostage rescue. You have, in the United States, you only have three. You have the Delta Force, you have SEAL Team 6, 
and you have the FBI's hostage rescue team. Uh, your basic SWAT teams and even most of your SEAL teams cannot effectively uh, do hostage rescue. It requires surgical shooting. That's very difficult against skill set the master. And there's very few countries that have the ability to do that. Israel being one, Germany, France, Australia, Great Britain, United States. And Greg, you have experience in hostage rescue in the past globally. You've already touched on some of the skill sets, but just how difficult is this, especially in an active war zone? Well, it's very difficult. You, you, know, you need to have a lot of intelligence as well. Uh, you need to have the, the, you know, where the hostages are being held, how are they being held, you know, what's the uh, the opposing force, what's the strength of them, what kind of weapons are they carrying, are the hostages booby trapped, are the doors booby trapped with explosives, you know, what's the inside of the building look like that you're about to hit. So, you know, you got to gather that intelligence as well, and that's very difficult to do, like you said, during wartime footing, getting that intelligence and getting those sources, uh, you know, close enough to gather that intelligence is, is a very difficult task. Now, Hamas is known to use human shields. How will that complicate this hostage rescue especially? Well, it add, add, adds a whole new dilemma to it. Uh, you know, are those uh, hostages, are they booby-trapped with, with explosive vests, suicide vests? Again, are the, are the doors being uh, booby-trapped? So when you enter the, the, the breach point, is it going to explode on you? So the fact that Hamas has historically used human shields makes that task just that much more difficult. And now, of the reported 150 hostages being held, there are Americans and other nationalities as well. The White House says it's working on bringing these Americans home. What is America's best bet at getting these hostages back safely? We're working side by side with our Israeli counterparts. Again, Israel is one of the very few countries, along with America, that has those teams that have the skill set to, to do a successful hostage rescue. So I am confident that we have... Uh, Personnel over there, probably from SEAL Team 6, Delta Force, and maybe some of my people from the FBI's hostage rescue team may be over there acting as consultants. They probably have an active team waiting in the ready so when American hostages are located, they can use an American unit to rescue those hostages. Because right now, all the Israelis military units, they're, they're stretched so thin. You know, they're, they're in the middle of a war. So I'm sure Israel is welcoming any and all help that they can get from America, especially from those elite units like SEAL Team 6 and Delta Greg Schaefer, thank you so much for your time. Coming up, will Congressman Steve Scalise get the votes to become House Speaker? Frustration is growing among House Republicans as a path forward is still unclear. Federal prosecutors accuse Senator Bob Menendez of acting as a foreign agent. NTD's legal correspondent reports on the new charges out today. And negotiations have been suspended between actors and the studios. The two sides disagree so much, they've stopped talking to one another. What we can expect in the coming days after the break. Welcome back. Frustration is growing among House Republicans as a path for seating a new speaker does not look promising anytime soon. After a closed-door meeting meant to hash out different points of view, many expressed uncertainty about the path ahead for Steve Scalise to take the gavel. NTD's Melina Weisskopf joins us from the Capitol with updates. Melina, any movement on the vote for speaker at this point? 
Good evening, Tiff. Unfortunately, no, there is no movement as of this point. The House has been over a week now without a speaker in place in a three-hour meeting today with Republican members behind closed doors. Didn't yield any progress, and that led to some members leaving that meeting quite frustrated about their inability to make progress here. Now, it's important to note that this comes even after Chairman Jim Jordan, who was one of the candidates, conceded and instead threw his support behind Steve Scalise as a way to draw some of his supporters to change their direction. But that's not working, it's looking like. Leaving that meeting, members told us there are still at least around 15 to 20 lawmakers who are simply unwilling to back Steve Scalise for various reasons. In their own words, here, here's how members have explained the situation. One of the members said in there, you know, I don't think the Lord Jesus himself could get 217. Think okay, about so that, that. So what is your message to the American people who are looking at you guys and they want some solutions, especially Republican are supporters? You, well, right? I'm supporting that? Steve Scalise. But when you only have a four-seat majority, it only takes four or five to say, mm, mm I don't like that. So what are you going to do? What are you going to do? We just want to make sure that uh, uh, we're all valued, but at the same time that, that we're actually solving something. Uh, I, don't, I don't think the speakership is so important as the body itself. And of those lawmakers who are refusing to back Steve Scalise, it's for various reasons. Some of them are just not happy with his plan and his direction for the House, specifically when it comes to his spending plans as we're approaching this spending fight again come November 17th. Others, like Marjorie Taylor Greene, say they're concerned about his health, and that's why they're refusing to back him. Although Marjorie Taylor Greene and a few others did express the need to speed things up, and the way they want to do this is to go ahead and have that public floor vote even if it means taking multiple rounds, multiple ballots, just like we saw in January with McCarthy. Take a look. I'm not concerned at all. I, I really think it's the best thing for the country when the American people can see what's happening, can hear our words and see our votes. You're still supporting Jordan. Why? Uh, so we've polled my district, and overwhelmingly the people of Tennessee, especially my district, support Jim Jordan. The reality is is that if it's not going to be Steve Scalise, then we need to figure out who it is. Uh, I really believe that um, the reasons that are being stated as to why individuals are not supporting uh, Steve is just, it's, it's, they're petty. Those however number there are, 17, 15, whatever it is, those guys get in a room, they work with Steve. If they can't be reconciled, then yeah, somebody else needs to step up. So that's one big question that Republicans have to grapple with now. Do they continue to try to support Scalise and he has to work even harder to try to shore up more support? Or do they try to look at another potential nominee to vote for on the House floor? Some are even talking about throwing Jim Jordan's name back in the race if Scalise still doesn't have the votes after a number of days. And another big question right now, of course, with all the urgency with the war happening in Israel, is should they raise the, the limits on the power of the temporary speaker that's in the seat right now? Tiff. Thanks for that update, Melina. Hoping we get some clear answers soon. In battle, Democratic Senator Bob Menendez charged with acting as a foreign agent. On Thursday, prosecutors accused the senior senator of secretly aiding the government of Egypt. NTD's legal correspondent Arlene Richards has more. After pleading not guilty to bribery conspiracy charges two weeks ago, Senator Bob Menendez was hit with another indictment Thursday. The new charges, leveled against him and his wife Nadine, accused the couple of conspiring to have a public official act as a foreign agent. According to the indictment, the senator provided sensitive U.S. government information and took other steps that secretly aided the government of Egypt. 
He's also accused of acting on behalf of the Egyptian military and intelligence officials. The couple were previously indicted on three charges of bribery conspiracy. They are accused of accepting hundreds of thousands of dollars in bribes in exchange for the senator's influence. Prosecutors allege the bribes included gold, cash and a luxury vehicle. Both Menendez and his wife have pleaded not guilty. Menendez has refused calls from his fellow Democrats to resign. Uh, it doesn't bring me or any of us joy to say uh, that he should resign, uh, but he should. Uh, for the betterment of the Democratic Party, uh, for the people of New Jersey. It's better that he fights this trial um, outside of the halls of Congress. Democrat Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer has expressed deep concern about the indictment, but hasn't yet called for Menendez to resign. Although the embattled senator did step down as chairman of the Foreign Relations Committee, it's unclear if he will run for re-election next year. The new charge carries a maximum sentence of five years in prison. Menendez and his wife are now facing as much as 50 years in prison if convicted. Tiffany? The writer's strike has ended, but the actor's strike is heating up. Actors and studios disagree so strongly they've suspended their negotiations. NTD's Jeff Bradley has more. Striking actors at Hollywood studios have suspended negotiations. The actors say the studios refuse to protect performers from being replaced by artificial intelligence, refuse to increase wages to keep up with inflation, and refuse to share a tiny portion of their immense revenue that actors' work generates for them. The studios say a gap between the two sides is too great and their conversations are no longer productive. In their last statement, the studios say they do agree to compensate actors every time an AI replica is used. The studios have also offered a series of wage increases, such as the highest percentage increase in minimums in 35 years, which could generate nearly $900 million in additional compensation. And they're offering a 58% increase in salaries for performers on major roles. It's childish behavior on both sides. It's one thing to say we're far apart, but to walk away from a table is ludicrous. What this is isn't a fight about a 46% increase or a 90% increase. This is a fight about this, the AMPTP's willingness, particularly with streamers, to disclose streaming numbers. Craig Grivey is an executive at Go Digital Media Group and a former executive at Rogers & Cowan, which represents over 400 prominent actors. He says the studios don't want to disclose the number of views that movies or shows get on streaming platforms because they're afraid of Wall Street. If they make the numbers public, Wall Street might hold them accountable for actual audience ratings. Grivey hopes the two sides can eventually reach an agreement because the strike is affecting the entire industry and beyond. I have a number of friends who are writers and producers and actors who have found their livelihoods at stake. The strike can only go on for so long without dramatic impact. Grivey says if the strike continues, people will lose their homes. Both of them should see the greater future if they improve the system for the artists fairly. Apple Tungfeng is the founder of Entertainment Oxygen, a platform that connects people in the industry. She says she knows a producer who's worked with actors like Morgan Freeman and John Travolta, but is now driving for Uber because all production has ceased. Tungfeng also hopes the strike ends soon. It's been going on for around three months. It's in the mutual interest and benefit of both parties to come to an agreement. 
And I think they will in the relatively near future. Labor relations expert Jerry Cutler says the studios need actors to make content and the actors need work. So he predicts they'll come to an agreement by the end of the year. Jack Bradley, NTD News. Coming up, the Hamas terrorist group wants action even beyond Israel's borders. It's asking jihad fighters to mobilize tomorrow, including in the U.S. And anti-Semitism in Arab textbooks now spreading to the U.S., according to an award-winning journalist. Find out why he says the hand of the communist inflames hatred and division. More when we return. Welcome back. If you're just joining us now, here are some of today's top headlines. Israel says it will continue with the siege of Gaza until Hamas releases the hostages they took. Secretary of State Antony Blinken visited Tel Aviv and pledged U.S. support for the country. No major progress after House Republicans met to discuss the election for House Speaker. Some of them tell NTD there are anywhere from 15 to 20 Republicans not backing House Majority Leader Steve Scalise. Democratic Senator Bob Menendez was charged with acting as a foreign agent for Egypt. Federal prosecutors filed a new indictment against him in addition to the bribery charges he's already pleaded not guilty to. There have been devastating reports emerging about the Hamas terrorist group beheading babies. NTD's Jason Perry hears a report from on the ground and a warning the following footage may be disturbing. On Wednesday, President Biden shook the airwaves when he said this. I mean, I, I, I've been doing this a long time. I never really thought that I would see and have confirmed pictures of terrorists beheading children. But the White House later issued a clarification in the Washington Post, saying Biden had not seen pictures or confirmed the reports independently. Photos of deceased babies were later posted by Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu on X. And also on Wednesday, a spokesman for the Israeli Defense Forces also commented on X about the atrocity. And we got very, very disturbing reports of uh, that came from the ground that there were babies that had been beheaded. And I admit it took us some time to really understand and, and to verify that report. And it was hard to believe that even Hamas could uh, uh, perform such a barbaric act. But after eyewitnesses came forward and after a senior official in the Israeli coronary service, Zaka, came forward on record on CBS News and said, yes, I saw the bodies of beheaded babies. I think we can now say with relative confidence that this is unfortunately what happened in Be'eri. This is what Hamas did to Israeli civilians. To further confirm this, I spoke with the CEO of Epic Israel, Dor Leventor. He has heard from members of Zaka, the Israeli Coronary Service. The organization is made of volunteers who assist in identifying victims and ensuring a proper burial according to Jewish law. And this is what they told him. They work in this organization for so many years. They never seen something like that. Not on this scale. And they described some gruesome details. Um, pregnant woman, they just cut her stomach to make sure a uh, uh, girl's dead with uh, blood all over, cold all over. 
uh, use condoms uh, all over the girls. Babies and kids, heads cut off, all ages, not just, you know, not just babies. Babies, kids, all ages, uh, heads cut off. Them to women in wheelchair outside of her home. Leventor mentioned that there were over 1,500 people brutally murdered. They put bombs under some of the bodies. Uh, so some bodies, they cannot move yet. Uh, it's a mess. You can describe the most worst horror movie you ever saw. And it still won't be what I just described to In such a devastating situation, there was a bit of hope. Twin babies, less than a year old, were found alive, according to a post on X by the Israeli embassy in France. The parents apparently hid them just before they themselves were murdered by Hamas terrorists. Jason Perry, NTD News. The Jerusalem Post also confirmed the reports today based on verified photos of the bodies. Those photos were also shown to Secretary of State Antony Blinken during his visit to Israel today. Hamas has declared tomorrow a day of worldwide general mobilization against Israel. Meanwhile, a student group is organizing what it calls a day of resistance on U.S. campuses today. Hamas this week is calling for world mobilization on Friday the 13th. In a statement, Hamas says it's seeking action from our Palestinian people, the masses of the Arab and Islamic world, and free people worldwide. The Heritage Foundation said, It is an unambiguous global call to arms. It will be heated. There will be blood. The White House has said it's working to identify possible threats the U.S. might face on Friday. And that's why we're working so closely with state and local authorities to, to be able to identify any potential threats and disrupt those threats uh, before, before they happen. Meanwhile, a group called National Students for Justice in Palestine is organizing a nationwide day of resistance on Thursday. The organization created this controversial template for colleges across the U.S. to use. It shows a Hamas fighter on a motorized paraglider, a method the terrorists used to invade Israel and kill civilians. It's not clear how many Day of Resistance events took place as of Thursday afternoon, but as you can see here, there are some pictures of events circulating online already. The group might post more photos once all the events are finished. This comes as an Israeli student was reportedly attacked this week. The student saw someone taking down flyers that showed the names and pictures of Israelis believed to be held as hostages by Hamas. The incident happened at Columbia University in New York City. The student was later beaten with a stick outside the university's main library. He later said that being an Israeli these days comes with a certain type of threat. Meanwhile, progressive representatives Rashida Tlaib and Cori Bush are facing backlash for their responses to the war. Tlaib wanted to withhold U.S. funds from Israel after the attacks from Hamas. She also categorized the terror attacks as part of a resistance effort. Bush agreed with her. The two then faced heavy pushback from members of their own party, most of whom support Israel. What exactly is Hamas? NTD's Daniel Monahan has some background information on the terrorist organization. Hamas has been designated a terrorist organization by countries around the world, including the U.S., the EU, the United Kingdom, Australia, and Canada. It was created by Ahmed Yassin and six other Muslims in 1987. It is an offshoot of the Muslim Brotherhood, an extremist organization that has expressed hostility towards Israel and the West. Hamas stands for Islamic Resistance Movement. The National Counterterrorism Center says it has between 20 and 25,000 members. Terrorist members wear a green headband, and the group has both a military as well as a political unit. 
Hamas's charter calls for the Jewish state to be wiped off the map. Hamas took power in Gaza in 2006 after winning an election that has been contested for its lack of integrity. The terror group is known for using civilian centers in Gaza, including hospitals and schools, to launch rockets into Israel. It also uses civilians as human shields when targeted by Israeli forces. Hamas is known to receive financial and other support from Iran, a state sponsor of terrorism. The Wall Street Journal also reported on October 8th that Iran helped Hamas plan the attacks and gave it the green light to execute them. According to a Foundation for Defense of Democracies report, Iran has built a network of at least 19 armed groups on Israel's borders. The biggest ones are Hamas and Islamic Jihad, based in Gaza, and Hezbollah, based in Lebanon. These groups and others receive funding, training, and weapons from Iran's Islamic Revolutionary Guard Corps. Qatar is also accused of being a major supporter of Hamas, and that's where Hamas's leader, Ismail Haniya, currently resides. Qatar denies these allegations. Daniel Monahan, NTD News. Rallies organized by the Democratic Socialists of America this week have celebrated Hamas's actions. Why are some Americans thinking this way? To dive into it, we spoke with Alex Newman, an award-winning international journalist and the president of Liberty Sentinel Media. Alex Newman, thank you so much for joining us. Great to have you back on the show. It's great to be here. Thank you for having me. Following the horrors coming out of Israel, we're seeing some left-leaning groups cheering on the Hamas terror group. For example, you have BLM coming out in support with pro-Palestine messages. What's the connection? Well, this is actually not a new phenomenon. This has been going on for a very long time. And we know from many high-level Soviet defectors, including uh, Ion Pachepa, who was the head of Romanian intelligence, that uh, the communists had a plan to radicalize and, and further inflame Islamic hatred toward Jews, toward Americans. Uh, in fact, Ion Pachepa, in his book, he quotes uh, Yuri Andropov, the head of the KGB, as explaining that a billion Muslims could inflict far more damage on the United States and uh, its allies than just the communists could alone. So they, uh, he actually estimated, Ion Pachepa, that they had sent in 4,000 uh, KGB and communist agents into the Islamic world to radicalize Muslims, to teach them that the United States was the great Satan and that Israel was the little Satan. And uh, of course, this is a long history in the Arab terrorism directed at Israel. The PLO was actually uh, basically a Soviet front group. Uh, when, when you look at the founding back in the 1960s in Egypt, they didn't even mention Islam. It was all about revolution and Arab revolutionary uh, activities. So uh, this is not a new phenomenon. Of course, the communist Chinese participated in this as well. And, uh, you know, that's not to completely deny the influence of uh, Islamic theology in, in a lot of this, but really the, the communist nexus has been there for generations, and it should be very obvious to anybody who's looking. And Alex, you actually wrote a book titled Crimes of the Educators, How Utopians Are Using Government Schools to Destroy America's Children. Give us a sense of how this type of indoctrination, if you will, begins in the classroom. Uh, it does, and we see it in the United States, and we also see it very clearly in the Arab world. In fact, the UNRWA, the Relief and Works Agency that, uh, of course, the U.S. government has been funding for many, many years, is notorious for producing textbooks that have uh, vile anti-Semitism, that openly call for uh, the elimination of Jews and driving them into the sea. And unfortunately, we're seeing a lot of the same stuff in the United States of America. Um, we're seeing uh, textbooks that portray Israel as uh, as the founder of the Black Lives Matter, Patrice 
Keller's put it, an imperialist project that needs to be wiped off the map. And of course, uh, this stuff is all um, uh, vile, it's hateful, but it is infecting the minds of young people, not just across the Arab world, but also even here in the United States that we're seeing this now with growing demonstrations in major American cities, growing demonstrations in major cities across Europe. And uh, I, I think people really do need to understand that this kind of hatred is not natural to people. Uh, it, it is being instilled in them through the deliberate efforts of people who hope to inflame hatred, manipulate that hatred for evil purposes. And of course, the hand of the communists has been there all along. And Alex, to your point, we saw 31 student groups at Harvard come out with a letter saying Israel was to blame what's happening there. Now, some of them have retracted their statements following growing backlash. What's your understanding of their motivation? Well, I, I think a lot of socialist and communist groups are, quote unquote, pro-Palestine, just because that's the default socialist and communist position, not just in this country, but around the world. Uh, you see that in, in, in the United Nations very clearly. And so, uh, you know, we see this very clearly on college campuses in the United States. These have really become hotbeds of left-wing extremism, socialist activism, communist activism, and uh, it's very, very dangerous. And, and I, I think what happened at Harvard, and this is happening at other major universities all across America, is just the tip of the iceberg. We have a, a growing fervor that aims to dismantle not just Israel, but also the United States, and, and really what's left of the free world, what used to be known as Western civilization or Christendom. Uh, this is an orchestrated attack, and, uh, and I think these divisions and this hatred is being fueled very deliberately and very strategically. And speaking of those divisions, even in the case of Harvard, we're seeing thousands of students, alumni, faculty pushing back in their own letter. With all of these divisions we're seeing across campuses and society, how do you see this playing out? Well, I, I think these divisions are going to continue to fester. The hatred is going to be continually inflamed. Uh, and, and one of the things that we see the communists have been trying to do in this country for generations is actually foment division for division's sake, right? As the Bible says, a kingdom divided against itself cannot stand. The more issues they can divide Americans on, the more issues they can fracture our population on, the easier it is to take over. But I think what happened in Israel, and, and there are obviously very real questions about how these terrorists were able to infiltrate one of the most secure borders on the face of the planet. Uh, I've been in communication with people, current and former, from IDF, intelligence, uh, suggesting that something catastrophic had to have happened here to allow that to happen. This is one of the most heavily guarded borders orders on the planet is filled with every kind of sensor you can imagine. Uh, but all that aside, uh, we have a very similar problem on our southern border, which is not defended at all. And we have now, we know, uh, they, they've been caught repeatedly. I've spoken with uh, some of the top leaders, former from the previous administration on Border Patrol. We've got special operations troops coming in from the People's Liberation Army. We've got jihadists coming in. We've got people who are on our terrorist watch list. Uh, what just happened in southern Israel, I think, could be a foretaste of what we can expect in this country if we don't put a stop to this. And as we've seen with these demonstrations in our cities, there's going to be a major faction of the American population that will likely side with the people who hope to destroy this country. So uh, we are in great danger. Israel is in great danger. And people need to understand that there's so much more going on behind the scenes than what we're seeing and than what's being reported in the media. And you mentioned we could be seeing something similar playing out here if we don't stop it. So how do we stop it? Well, I think the first 
an obvious thing that needs to be done is the border needs to be brought under control. Um, somewhere on the order of six to eight million illegal immigrants have flowed through that border that we know of just over the last few years of the Biden administration. So step one is stop the bleeding, get that border under control immediately. Uh, we need to track down all these people that have come across the border, find out exactly what's going on. Anybody who doesn't belong here, who's not here legally, needs to be expelled. Uh, this is potentially a catastrophe in the making. And I do believe it is an existential threat to our country. So we've got to get on this right now. And the House of Representatives in Republican hands has the opportunity to force the issue in the upcoming budget fight. So let's hope that uh, Republicans will take their responsibility to our Constitution and to our national security very seriously as we move ahead. Alex Newman, thank you so much for your time. Thank you for having me. Next, we're taking a look at Israel's first line of defense against terrorist groups, the Iron Dome. With a past success rate of over 90 percent, analysts say it saved countless civilian lives over the last decade. NTD's Jeremy Sandberg explains how the Iron Dome works. The Iron Dome targets short-range unguided rockets that remain at low altitudes, the type often fired by Hamas terrorists. The missile defense system developed by Rafael Advanced Defense Systems is equipped with three to four maneuverable launchers that fire interceptor Tamir missiles. The system is mobile and can be set up in just a few hours on ships or land. Strategic placement provides a defense barrier for up to 60 square miles of Israel's populated areas. So how's it work? The system's radar detects incoming rockets within two and a half to 43 miles. It then uses a command and control system to quickly calculate the projectile's path. The control center looks at the predicted location of impact and checks for populated areas. Rockets posing the greatest threat are prioritized when multiple targets are detected. According to Raytheon and the Center for Strategic and International Studies, 10 land-based Iron Dome batteries are deployed across Israel. Operating costs can add up during wartime, with each missile costing around $40,000. Israel's multi-tier air defense also includes David's Sling for medium-range rockets and ballistic missiles, and the Arrow to intercept long-range missile attacks. The U.S. government has spent over $1.5 billion on the Iron Dome program and related research. The Center for Strategic and International Studies says over half of the system's components are currently manufactured in the U.S. Israel is expected to request additional interceptors, among other military assistance from Washington, after the recent terrorist attack. Jeremy Sandberg, NTD News. Coming up, the Kansas City Chiefs host the Denver Broncos in a divisional game that could feature a certain pop star. And hundreds of colorful quilts on display. The Pacific International Quilt Festival brings together quilt connoisseurs, creators, and admirers. Stay tuned for that after the break. Now for your sports news, here's NTD's Dave Martin with another blow to the Live Golf League. That's right, Tiff. Tuesday's news that Live golfers will not be awarded ranking points was seemingly met with a shrug by league players. Cameron Smith, who was ranked as high as second last year before defecting to the Saudi-funded league, called the rankings obsolete. Dustin Johnson, who won Liv's inaugural title last year, similarly questioned the validity of the rankings they don't include their 48 golfers. Said the two-time major champion, quote, 
hard to use the world ranking system if you're excluding 48 guys that are good players. The rankings are skewed. It doesn't really affect me as it does some of the other guys. I want the points for the other guys. Now what's at stake here in the rankings are a pathway to the four majors, the Masters, the US Open, the British Open, and the PGA Championships. Now these are not PGA Tour events. Instead, they have their own criteria they use in qualifying golfers, with the most common being the world ranking points. Now the main reason cited by the official world golf ranking system for not granting ranking points was because the league will have the same 48 players at every event this season. Now there will be turnover on a year-to-year -year basis as only half, the top 24 players, are guaranteed a spot there next season. Now most other tours typically have a turnover rate of just 20 to 25% though. Admittedly, this could all change when the PGA Live merger is finalized. And for your sports viewing schedule tonight, Game 4 of the NLDS in a series that's suddenly become personal. The Atlanta Braves will try and respond to Bryce Harper's heroics, needing a win to extend to a Game 5. And on the ice, seven NHL games are on, featuring the defending Stanley Cup champion Las Vegas Golden Knights, who are playing at the San Jose Sharks. And finally, in the NFL, the Kansas City Chiefs host the Denver Broncos in a game that's sure to star Taylor Swift. And that's it for your sports news today. Tiff, back to you. Hundreds of quilted artworks at an international festival from traditional styles to innovative designs. This year's theme is perseverance. Connoisseurs hope to spread art to the world while attendees look for inspiration. NTD's David Lamb reports. Every year, many quilt connoisseurs come to the Pacific International Quilt Festival to draw inspiration and to see the collections of the masterpieces. About 320 quilts got accepted into this year's International Quilt Competition held in Santa Clara, California. They must have been quilted within the last three years. The creator of this is Akizaki, and she's from uh, Tokyo, Japan. Uh, it's all hand done. And, and if, you, if you get a close-up of this and get to the show and look at it close, you're, you're going to see how incredible it really is. Uh, it, it, it's, it's appliqued, it's trapunto, it's all hand-stitched, it's her original design, and, and, and it's gotten our top honor this year. David Mancuso says competition categories are for traditional, innovative, and mid-century modern styles. This year's theme was perseverance, and Mancuso said the quilt that won Best of Show embodied that, especially after the pandemic. You have to have a lot of perseverance to do that kind of hand stitching. There were an additional 450 to 500 pieces on special exhibition. One artist allows kids a chance to bring their quilting into life. So we've done middle schools in Richmond, Oakland, Berkeley. We've done juvenile halls. We've done adult jails. We've done classes at UC Berkeley. As, as you look at these quilts, yes, 20 kids made these 20 blocks, but then 20 adults embroidered those kids' art, and then a team of, of volunteers in Vacaville, for the most part, helped piece all these quilts, and then another volunteer long-armed it. Volunteers brought this quilt to life for an oil painter in Nigeria who didn't have means to complete the quilt himself. The event also holds workshops and lectures with instructors from all over, including Spain and Africa, as well as a marketplace for fabric and sewing machines and wearable art with a fashion show. We get more and more creative. We do more social media. We do, you know, we do you know, wonderful things. And we're starting to see a younger crowd. And that's where the future is. 
The quilt festival runs until Sunday. David Mancuso, the man behind this festival, says that even though the festival has grown over the years, he still hopes the younger generation could come to appreciate the arts more. In Santa Clara, California, David Lamb, NTD News. If you have any news tips or feedback for the show, you can email us at eveningnews at ntd.com. That's all for today's news. Thanks for tuning in. I'm Tiffany Meyer. Good night.